Hello, every it was a lot. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Michael Manning. We're actually on time today. We're not 20 minutes late. And welcome to Nerd Haven on this. I can't say what the weather is today. It's chilly, it's warm, it's kind of in between. I wore a sweater and I simultaneously feel like that was a good and bad decision. But on this Monday, and I am joined today by someone who has been able to make it to the show in a bit. Hello, it's Liv. It's Liv. We need to fix that crack in the window. Like, crack between window. you and Zen, you guys keep crawling through. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I've, beca- I've become so used to it that I forget that it, I come through the window. Honestly. Oh, that's not just the door? It's pretty yeah. open. It's just that Better. open. It's like, yeah, it's just another entrance. Better than the ghost door. <laughs> it just blows open when it feels like it. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> ah, but... Thank you for tuning in today, folks. Um, you might notice I'm a bit more high energy. Um, today was weird with classes, but I I have this thing where when it comes to media or just an idea or something I want to do, the moment that that idea pops into my head, I am, like, energized, and I want to do it. Um, and I watched, I just finished, a six-hour Retrospective of Kingdom Hearts, uh, which everyone will know I am obsessed with, um, that recontextualized some stuff. It really made me want to talk about this thing. And my friend Liv here gets this topic oh, yeah. substantially. Enough vagueness. Um, <coughs> today's topic is going to be representation in media, particularly representation that I align with, which would be queer representation. Um, (laughs) now, I think representation of, I've talked about this before in little bursts, I think representation of all kinds is very important. I, the only word I can think of is that I've been blessed to be, considering some of my position, a white cis dude, to have been introduced so early to all different types of outlooks. I, some of the most important people in my life, my friends, are queer, I was introduced to all kind of gender non-conforming and different gendered identities. Um, I Two of the most important people in my life were my black cousins when I was like six, mm-hmm. who literally lived a block down from us. And one of those cousins, Melina, who's one of the most important people in my life right now, um, is gay. And she was one of the first exposures I ever had as a little kid to the idea that someone could be gay. And I have to thank particularly my mom for just not being any of those things herself, but just being unstoppably accepting like that's so I, wholesome i yeah i i know i come with those all mama's boy gushy gushy stuff but like she deserves it you know no you're really lucky you know like a lot of people yeah. i mean i don't mean to like rub it in your face like how lucky no, you are no no but I, you are yeah and it's great and you should I, be excited about that yeah i am i am blessed with my parentage <laughs> considering everything my my parents i don't th- i secretly don't think they believe me Mm. Um, when I have said that I am bisexual, mm-hmm. um, my mom didn't speak for me for two, didn't speak to me for like two weeks. Wow. When I first came out, it was hell. Were you still living at home? Yeah. What? Wow. I was 14. Jiminy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways. Sorry. Oh my no, God. No, it's okay. I didn't mean to trauma dump there. No, no. Um, you're, hey, you're fine. This is, this is an open platform. And I still don't really think that they believe me. Mm-hmm. Um, because they haven't seen me, um, like publicly go out with women. And part of that is because 
Yeah. I'm still uncomfy with the fact that they really just, they don't get it. Mm-hmm. And they aren't super supportive. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that feels bad. You're not alone with that, though. Like, especially, I feel like, with bisexual people, you get erased a lot. Like, it's oh, that yeah. kind of quiet bigotry of, like, we're not going to explode at you or tell you to stop, but, like, sure. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, you kind of are usually in that place where a large chunk of the LGBTQ community is telling you to pick a side. Mm-hmm. And then the other, you know, you're usually straight conservative parents are also telling <laughs> you to pick a side. Yeah. And you're like, but I'm not on either side. Right. I, I cross the line, for you know? So, for so many people, and this is the thing a lot of people are chicky out of more recently, thankfully. And people are so used to things surrounding gender and sexuality as being a binary. Yeah. It's just not. The human experience is too much emotion and everything surrounding being a person and being sapient is too much, in my opinion, to just be a switch. True. It's it's laughable to me. It's ignorant. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyways, so <laughs> my parents aren't like hecka supportive mm-hmm. like your mom is. But at the same time, they're not kicking me out of their house. Right. And they're not telling me I'm going to hell. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing any of that. So I could have it a lot worse. I'm lucky, too. <laughs> no, I, and I get you. But it, it's okay to... You're you're looking at it very, very... What's the word I'm thinking of? Um, what is it? Maturely. Objectively. Like, you're, yes, you're, you're acknowledging that you have you have things better than some people do. But that doesn't mean that you can't go, man, I wish this was a little better. That's fine. Thanks. It's healthy. Um, and I thank you for opening up that much. I yeah, really no problem. Um, Rip the Band-Aid off at the beginning. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm really be- vulnerable, really, like, right off the bat, whether, uh, you know, that's to my advantage or not. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to do that with people you like, people True. you care about. Um, but that's the other thing, is that um, that the video I watched, and um, in my opinion, the pretty insane sudden shift a lot of people have had in, like, the recent depictions of especially gender non-conforming and trans people in mainstream media is a little insane to me. Mm-hmm. Once again, I'm lucky. Zen, Parker, some of my closest friends are gender non-conforming. I've I've be, I was introduced to this at a pretty early phase that I get it. And I understand to a certain degree that learning new things can be scary. Mm-hmm. But the level of demonization that trans people especially, it happens to all queer people. Oh, but course. trans people especially are getting is kind of appalling. Yeah. Like kind of pisses me off. Mm-hmm. Um and this, I, obviously, there's not much I could physically do. We are violating improv rules today, baby. <laughs> We're talking politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. And that kind of segues right into the topic. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That queer representation in media, you get some weird ones. It's like, obviously, there's the barrier gaze trope that you see in a lot of stuff, especially mm-hmm. like the early 2000s. My favorite example being Supernatural. Oh, I was going to say, are you going to talk about Supernatural? A little or are you bit. Talk about a little bit. That, this isn't my Kendall, show. I hope you're listening. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, where eventually, through either 
pushing by the writers, pushing by the fan base who have seen the coding and really, really want it, or just something, a gay character, a queer character of some kind, will be finally confirmed wholeheartedly and then killed off immediately. Supernatural does it where after years and years of a gay ship that has been constantly hinted at and Mm -hmm. borderline pushed by the show itself, as soon as one of the characters says it, he dies dies and then gets locked in, like, super hell. Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's pretty... (laughs) It's, like, the the example I go for where it's, like... It's them basically going... It's, like... It's like a really stubborn teacher or grandparent where it's like, fine, but asterisk. Yeah. Like, fine, you can you could watch a show, but you have to go to bed after. Like, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Just sudden, immediate stomping. True. Um, and aside from that, trans, or not, well, not just trans. I don't know why I said that. Queer characters. Um... And queer representation is tied so directly to um, uh, taboos because for the longest time, and even somewhat still today, a character being queer was the taboo. So a lot of times you have a writer go, okay, fine, let's double down. <laughs> um, that's why, yeah, you it's hard, especially as a young queer individual, to find representation in a media for you without having to go to mature media. I mean, we've taken massive strides with this. Um, Owl House is a big one where the main character is explicitly bisexual. Mm -hmm. That got the show canceled, but the episodes that are still coming out have gone full balls to the walls. She's wearing a bisexual pin on her hat. Like they are, they are going for it. Mm -hmm. Um, stuff like that. You have quieter stuff like gravity falls. Um, and, like, stuff that is happening in younger kids' media. And, I mean, the thing that got me interested in this was the queer reading of Kingdom Hearts, where Riku is gay, which makes a lot of sense. I um, mean, if there's six hours worth of explaining there's, and so content much. to review so about much. the fact that he's gay, I mean... And it, I it, mean. It's, so, it's so good, dude. <laughs> it's, like, wow. Um, but... It it's there, but it's not as common as it could be. A lot of like most of the time, it's so inherently tied to explicitly taboo media. You have stuff where like <coughs> ghost stories, ghost stories. There it is. Very open depictions of of queerness would be tied to very risque or just straight up horror movies. Like I remember a big one being Rocky Horror Picture Show, where it's like you look at Rocky Horror. It's it's pretty much like. An icon of queer media. Oh, it's, exactly. It's, it's pure camp. The aesthetic of it is so, like, owned by... The entire idea... The whole thing is so... Ah. Everything. It's yeah. everything. <laughs> like, you can't put a label to it. Just the fact that they are aliens that have come to, you know, like... I don't... I guess I'm spoiling it. I guess I'm spoiling <laughs> it. But, like, the literal invasion aspect, the otherness mm-hmm. aspect, it just... It doesn't, it doesn't even have, you know, there's no, like, there's no fuzz about it. Right, there's no exactly. fuzziness There's about no it. ambiguity. It's very clear. Yeah, it's very explicit um, in a lot of ways. Um, 
And yeah, it's it's fun as a reading of like, oh, this is fun, but has the problematic thing of like, oh, they are invaders. Or you could read it as kind of that taboo double down. Oh, we're invaders, huh? Yeah. Oh, we're the other guy, huh? Exactly. Sure. <laughs> it's the little. It's the. Uh, it's the little NASA X video for. Uh, <laughs> God, what is? It? I forget. I don't, call me by your name. That's there what it go. is. That's the song name. Where? Uh, oh my gosh! And man, that riled up some people. Where he yeah, he twerks on the devil. And then he snaps his neck, which, first of all, I think is excellent. I think it's epic because it just says, fine, if you tell me that I'm going to hell, then I will rule it. <laughs> right. No, it's it's that kind of re... It's, it's a thing that queer culture has done so many times in real life where you take the labels that are forced upon you like... And I know a lot of people are comfortable with it, but I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I... I'm not as queer as some other people, so maybe I don't have a say on this. But the word queer mm-hmm. is, like, was, like, the word. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, like... And... It's a, it's a reclaim... Like, technically, it's a reclaim slur. Yeah. Although it's definitely, like, been sanded off. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing with a lot of things. We're like, yeah, that's the word. That's what I could think of. Reclamation of a thing. Mm-hmm. It's of fine, and then turning that into... Something better. Yeah, it's man. I I forgot about that music video. Well, yeah, that and is that is insane. I I keep forgetting about the music video. Yeah, and well, I mean, it's also like a direct reference to Paradise Lost. You know, true. Better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Right. Exactly. So, <laughs> which is pretty epic, Miguel. I know you're listening. You need to read Paradise. <laughs> we need to read Paradise Lost. Good. It's very good. <laughs> It's not just a quote. There's a lot of media that you could reduce to just a quote. Oh, like, of course. Man. But, like, the video is, like, explicitly referring to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, anyways, speaking of, like, <laughs> taboo, you know, the association of queerness with taboo and, um, you know, the otherness. Obviously, like, you remember in... Dr. Gallagher's occult literature class, we actually mm-hmm. had a pretty interesting exposure to some technically early queer media, um, like Carmilla. Carmilla is, and, wow. Um, really, Dracula. Um, yeah, Dracula, yeah I, I didn't, I expected it from Carmilla. I didn't expect it from Dracula. I, I should have, but. Yeah, so for the essay assignment that we had to do where we had to read one of the, um, one of the reviews of it, you know, from a, particular perspective, I read the one that compared Dracula with Oscar Wilde at the time. That's the same one I did. Oh, so you know about this. Yeah. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But anyways, so obviously because, you know, queer people have been condemned to be the other, they've kind of taken refuge in a way in being the other. It's like, fine. Obviously, Um, it's a lot of yeah, a lot of monster media, even vampires, werewolves, Mm -hmm. uh, all different kinds of like that style of monster media sometimes was used as like, a oh, example of the other, the thing, yada, yada. And then, yeah, the reclamation of that idea. um, I I just really like werewolves. And And also the transition from, oh, my gosh, vampires are scary and couldn't. Corrupting Western civilization to man. Hot. Man, vampires are sexy. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And then I, that's the, the, like that pivot's been there for a while, and now it's happening to werewolves and just like it's wolf been character. happening to werewolves. Yes, it's it been has. happening to werewolves yes, since Twilight, bro. Okay, okay but I'd say I'd say earlier. less explicitly. Fair, fair. Um, but I like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I did want to actually read this quote. It's from one of my favorite YouTubers. He does a lot of video essays on um, analysis of queer media and queerness in media. Um, And this is from his video called um, The Gay Appeal of Toxic Love, in which he discusses, um, obviously, the gay appeal of toxic love Mm -hmm. in two different shows, Interview of the Vampire and Hannibal. Mm. Um, But this is from the very opening of the video, and I think it's a really... A really nice summary of, you know, this idea of queerness and taboo being tied. Mm-hmm. Horror has always been an inherently traditionalistic genre, since fear is an inherently traditional conservative emotion, and horror is often used for preserving traditional values. The victory of those who are virtuous, the punishment of those who are wicked, and rejection of the other. Nevertheless, for centuries, queerness and horror have been inextricably linked, with horror relying on queerness for shock value and queerness relying on horror for visibility and validation. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very apt summary of that. Exactly. I just couldn't pick a, I couldn't think of a better, you know, way to put a little bow on it, you Absolutely, know? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, and with that, um, a lot of, like, queerness, here's the thing. There's a reaction from a lot of non-queer people to, um, Queerness is often not explicit in the media, but it's read. It's a it's yeah. a view of it and a lot of readings of that media. And there's this weird thing where, like, people will get mad at that, like yeah. at a headcanon or a reading or something mm-hmm. that doesn't align with theirs. Um, I saw that a lot with Arcane oh, most yeah. recently. Um, R- where in Arcane? Is well, it- with as explicit as Caitlin and Vi are. Right. Um, and... Especially the one, and this is this irks me. This irks me as a guy who thinks that some other guys are hot. That um, <laughs> that the whole Jace and Victor people. Oh, they baited us so hard. Here's the thing. No, no, I still, I still believe because here's the thing. This, this was the first. This was the first chapter of that specific. I'm, I'm True. so into the show True. because Warwick's gonna be in it. Because oh, yeah. those two, and because there's gonna be more Noxus. Oh yeah. Um, that's four reasons, not two. Um, but. For those who may not remember, um, in Arcane, there is the very explicit, has been shipped in League proper for years, Caitlin and Vi, you know, right. the, the two detectives, good cop, literally good cop, bad cop, yep. like, they even recently got a super explicit skin line that's just the two of them and a Mumu, where they are high schoolers, goth girl, and prep girl, and their their descriptions are poems that they're sending to each other to ask each other to a prom. That's hilarious. Like it could not be more explicit. Right. Um, I'm I'm pumped, folks. But we're gonna have to be right back after a quick break. I talking about you. You did this. I didn't even think about this. We're talking about <laughs> Jason Victor in just a minute. You brought it up. Yeah. Eating right isn't just good for your body. It also reduces your risk of developing all sorts of diseases, including cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and stroke. And it's so easy to eat right. At mealtimes, fill half your plate with fruits and vegetables. 
choose foods that are low in calories, fat, and sodium. Limit your alcohol and maintain a healthy weight. A registered dietitian nutritionist can help. Find one near you at eatright.org. Hey, do you see a trash can anywhere? No, I don't. Just throw it on the ground. It's fine. Our oceans, our lands, our environment, all of these things are affected by littering. In the U.S. alone, there are nearly 50 billion pieces of litter along our roadways and waterways. U.S. taxpayers are spending more than $11.5 billion each year cleaning up litter, and that number could continue to grow. Take the extra few seconds to find a trash can. It will make a difference. Reclaim your life with SafeNet Erie. SafeNet is an organization that is committed to ending domestic violence, affirming human dignity, and delivering comprehensive direct services to victims of domestic violence. SafeNet provides a 24-hour hotline answered by qualified and trained staff members and volunteers. Some of the services include crisis intervention, safety planning, and many more. Call SafeNet at 814-454-8161. Hello. I turned on the wrong mic. Hello, everybody. I am your host, Michael Manning. Welcome back to Nerd Haven with that quick break. I am I am pumped. Um, because what we were just talking about was how um, you can read a lot of queer messages into media, and a lot of people react negatively to that. And the one that irks me most recently, aside from The Last of Us, which was awesome, that episode of The Last of Us was amazing. Michael, I just realized something. What did you just realize? Okay, I'm not even sure if the mic could hear you whisper that. <laughs> but, um, okay, now I'm interested. But, so, Arcane, Jason Victor. There is a very interesting relationship that Jason Victor have had, even in the original League media, because they were both men. One of, one of them was from Piltover, Jace. One of them was from Zon, the Undercity, Victor. And they both believed that they could utilize this new technology, Hextech, to improve the lives of people. Jace, because... He is just an altruist and wants to help people. Victor, because he is a cripple, and he wants to make sure that no kid ever has to grow up like that again. And it's a f- immediately a very interesting dynamic because they're, they're, that same motivation drives them completely different ways. Jace says, okay, give everybody Hextech. You gotta, you gotta like, give them devices and inventions and all these different things. Let them buy all these new things to improve their lives. And Victor's like... That's not the issue. The issue is the human the element. The issue is the system, and the issue is the human... Well, okay. In the original text, yeah, in, 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 the League, text. in League, it's the human element. I like yeah. that in Arcane, they're focusing more on the system. Um, but yeah, in the original text, Jace is like, or Victor goes, okay, it's the human element, I'm going to turn everybody into robots. <laughs> what? And, and it kind of goes off the rails in the sci-fi future boyfriends fighting. And in Arcane, you have a much more believable, Jace is the, like, it's amazing, actually, how even part of the media is that Jace is almost being deified. He is, he's a good, rich kid from Piltover. Mm -hmm. He went to school, he learned how to keep working in the family factory, and he made it better because he's so dang smart. And let's use him as an icon for the whole board and for everybody and yada yada. And Victor, the guy who did just as much work as him, he's a cripple from the poor part of town. Who cares? 
Jace's bourgeoisie Victor is proletariat. Yes. <laughs> yes. Arcane is... Vi- Arcane. This is, like, <laughs> deliberately Marxist. Yes. Like, I'm... <laughs> there's no, you know, there's no fluff. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, Arcane leans very heavily on a class issue. And the main conflict is about how that inherent classism affects all the characters in the media. So far, we've seen that in, you know, gays are forced to angst because, yeah, that's just part of it, I guess. Um, And I'm allowed to be happy. Um, I will also adapt on that, but we'll do that later. Yes, yes, that's later. (laughs) Um, But Jace is like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty boy. I I get this, to be fair, really hot girl (laughs) Um, when Mel... Um, and even her whole arc, I don't want to reduce Mel. It, her whole arc is incredibly interesting. She's a very strong, her own original character. Um, and Victor is like, okay, fine. He's been pushed to his breaking point. His, his best friend, who he talked out of suicide because he cared that much and was just done so much for him and has done so much for him, is not there for him anymore. Mm-hmm. So... Back to work. And he invents, creates, I, I'm not ter- entirely, the, the, the hex core thing turns into a void monster and starts slowly, all of a sudden, like a horror way, corrupting Victor's body. It's given him his ability to walk again, which for him, understandably, removes all apprehension. That scene made me cry. That, I'm not the, gonna lie. Yeah, the, the scene of Victor running alongside the ships is legitimately perfect. He's also my favorite character in the entire show. He's my favorite too. I, I love <laughs> Victor in Arcane. Um and yes, you could very easily just read a friend bond. My friend is not here there for me. My anchor isn't here. Yada yada. I'm gonna take that with a giant, I'm going to take that idea and mush it with a giant sledgehammer <laughs> because um, we're going to talk about the, the, the Smeg scene, okay? We're going to talk about that. Okay, yeah. I because was... that is a direct parallel to Hannibal. Really? Let me explain. <laughs> okay, so, so, again, get a little bit of context for people who not know. Okay, There's so, a, uh, sorry. No. There's a scene in Arcane where um, Jace pulls off this, like, big um, money play with Mel, and it goes very, very well, and they've talked to each other about, like, their wants and who they want to be as people, and they have sex. At the same time, the scene is not very explicit. It's very tasteful, and it is overlaid with Victor working on the hex core, this device that Jace and him have been designing for years now, like five or six years. And the, the moment, the, the climax of the scene happens, you know, and as Victor completes the device. Yeah. And is knocked unconscious by it. So... The reason why I don't think this is a complete crackhead take, because it totally sounds like a crackhead take without any context, and that is because Hannibal has become foundational queer media. Um, it There are lots of references you to You want to give it. a little bit of context as to what Hannibal is? Okay, so Hannibal is a TV show that was made in, I think, 2011 or 2013 
by openly out crea- uh, director Brian Fuller. Um, the show follows uh, FBI profiler Will Graham and his uh, attempt to track down a serial killer with the help of psychiatrist and obvious cannibal, um, Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> <laughs> the same question mark character from Science of the Land. Correct, and really the TV show is a little bit closer to Red Dragon. Mm-hmm. Um specifically because of the murders that they're looking at. Right. Um, it actually takes, the majority of the show takes place before Red Dragon. Right, right. Um, but anyways, and even in Red Dragon, it's kind of implied that mm-hmm. there was something there. Right. Um, you know, besides just contract. Yeah, <laughs> correct. Um, or a consultation. Anyways, um, there is a scene in um, Hannibal in which... Um, one of the other psychiatrists who's been kind of looking out, trying, really advocating for Will against the FBI, and that is Alana Bloom, um, she actually ends up with Hannibal, even though she's had a massive crush on Will for a while. Mm-hmm. Another character who is a, um, who's actually a lesbian looking to, um, she basically uses Will, um, to have a child so that she can inherit her father's um, estate, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, Will, Will, and uh, Margot, who is the girl trying to get the estate, um, they do the nasty. Hannibal and Alana do the nasty. But the thing is, it's overlaid. The scene is overlaid on top of each other, and it focuses on Hannibal and Will. Yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. I don't know if In that... fact, I was watching it. I was I was watching it last time I watched Hannibal, and I was like, this is a lot like... Oh! <laughs> right. Did they really do that? Now it could be a, it could be a complete harebrained take. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the cinematography of the two scenes, you compare them side by side, you're going to be like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, no, and I, yeah. I, I believe you. I, like, I remember the scene. My... I've only seen Hannibal once, and it was in a bit of a rushed form because mm-hmm. a friend of mine just really wanted to, oh, yeah. to binge, watch it. Talk binge about watch. It. Um, yeah, exactly. That's a show that every single time I watch it, I find something that I missed. <laughs> Anyways. Super cool. Um, yeah, and it, um, it's so interesting. I had, like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I just got a flashback. Um it, specifically in Arcane, I adore the representation of... It's... I actually managed to tie it back. It reminds me so much of the depiction and the reaction that annoys me of people to the idea of Sora and Riku from Kingdom Hearts being mm-hmm. a couple. So, there's this freaking phrase that gets repeated so often of, why can't dudes be friends anymore why does everything have to be gay for every single canonical male gay relationship in a popular piece of media i could show you 20 platonic strong male friendships and i am not exaggerating based off of watches or based off of like watch plays and what you've told me um, Yakuza seems like a really good example of that. Yes. Yakuza <laughs> is a series that, and it. Oh no, I'm going to get him talking about Yakuza. <laughs> I'm talking about Yakuza in Kingdom Hearts. I'm happy, man. Um, <clears throat> Yakuza as a series, 
just like Kingdom Hearts and just like Arcane focuses so heavily. It's why I love them. Even Hannibal mm-hmm. focuses so heavily on emotions and oh, yeah. the tolls that you can emotionally go through, be it from straight up outside things like like crimes or horrible things happening to you, like losing somebody, mm-hmm. or just the way that a change in a relationship can affect you mentally and emotionally. Um, Yakuza, yes, has a... And this is part of kind of an ironic thing where, like, um, it ha- it's the same issue that happens with a lot of shonen. I, I, it's definitely intentional in Yakuza and Kingdom Hearts. But I remember when I was little, like, when, when like, early 2000s, you'd hear a lot mm-hmm. of jokes about, like, shonen anime, dragon, like, Naruto especially, mm-hmm. Soul Eater, a lot of that kind of battle action for young boy shonen stuff would be flooding with male characters that get actual writing and screen time and no female characters. Yeah. They just don't get, or, or if they're there, they do not get a focus. There right. is so much more, like, focus on Naruto and Sasuke's relationship to each other over the course of a, like, 200-chapter story than there is with them and either of the women that they marry and have children with. So, of course, it's kind of natural for people to... To, to read into that, yeah. And with Yakuza, not because of a lack of. There are a lot of strong female characters in Yakuza. But Yakuza focuses a lot on not only emotions, but it specifically focuses on masculinity and healthy forms of it. And that's why I respect it so much. Like, yeah, all the main characters in Yakuza are super buff freak bags who will tear their full suited jackets off to show off their abs and tattoos whenever emotions strike a high. I mean, if I had both of those things. If I could do that, absolutely. (laughs) If I could just tear off a super nice suit. Don't have the tattoos. We're working on the muscles. (laughs) Yes. Um... And it, it focuses so heavily on, like, the most commonly, the villain in a Yakuza story will not be, like, the Yakuza goes out of its way a lot of the time to forgive people doing heinous things as long as they show genuine remorse or that they did it because they truly believe in something. Very commonly, the villain, the actual final villain of a Yakuza title is, like, a politician or a family member or somebody that manipulated the person you thought was the villain into doing something. Mm -hmm. Like, the only thing Yakuza really vilifies is obviously just, like, abusing your own power Mm -hmm. and not believing in anything. Apathy and just greed and not believing in people is the worst thing you can be. It's the same thing in Kingdom Hearts. After, like, seven games (laughs) of finding and fighting the same guy who has literally caused two apocalypses, the game redeems him at the very end. Or it doesn't redeem him, but it asks you to be sympathetic to him Mm -hmm. because it tells you where he came from, why he did the things that he did, and it tells you that he genuinely believed what he was doing was the right thing. The only, like, thing that is vilified is hatred. And even then, you're allowed to be mad. That's a thing that happens. But just not wanting to get better is 
the villain. Like, stagnation is the villain in so much media, and I adore that. Like, also, Queer Cody, Kingdom Hearts, a lot of it, aside from just, like, oh, the 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 keyblade that Sora and Riku make, the only two characters that ever do this, where they are fighting so in sync and they trust each other so much that they could create a giant sword together and it insta-kills everything. It does not have a... I mean, the Freudian context behind that, too. I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it, does, it does not have a canon name. It has appeared in multiple games and is never given. Every... I'm not kidding you when I say every single Keyblade, no matter how stupid it is, has a name in these games. They are very particular about these being physical objects. Oh, yeah. And Sora and Riku's is never given a name. People just call it the Keyblade. The Keyblade! Also, it's... This is just me and my own weird relationship with, like, uh, religiousness and stuff. But the fact that it's made out of stained glass... Oh. Is so cool. Well, stained glass is a big motif. Yes. In Kingdom Hearts. It's everywhere. The the physical manifestation of your heart, which is basically your soul and all the emotions inside of you, you is a thing you can visit in for every single person. And that thing inside of every person is a stained glass window depicting you and the most important things and people in your life. Oh my gosh. And that is so it's in the Smash Bros. stage, dude. There's yeah. like eight hearts of different characters, and it's so cool. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts has this amazing, yeah, these visual motifs of stained glass and holiness and light, and that not being like a thing. It's not like a physical object. Light and all that kind of goodness is just living in your emotions and being connected with people in any way that that is. I, it's so good. And and the final <laughs> villain of Kingdom Hearts, Saiyan or, or the guy who was the final villain, I have no idea. There's a whole new game coming out. We have no idea what the villain is. Um, the, the villain got flashback cutscenes in the final game, in, or not the final game, but in Kingdom Hearts 3, the last big game that came out. As you go through the game, you get flashback scenes of his childhood with a, another character voiced by Mark Hamill, who <laughs> appeared earlier in the series. Um, it's Xehanort and Ericus. They're the Keyblade Masters. They are the old two old men, old men Yaoi. It's these, <laughs> <laughs> it's these like flashbacks of them growing up and how they built. They literally respected each other so much that they built their outlooks on life in opposition to each other not because they disagreed but because they wanted to challenge each other they talked about this prophecy that was talking about a clash of light and darkness as if it was a thing that was definitely going to happen since they were teenagers because they believed so strongly in each other and then and then when this man dies when you kill him and he get he gets the kingdom hearts game over screen which is like sort of floating in a void when you beat xehanort it plays the game over noise and has him sh fall into the same pose as his soul leaves his body and he's out of nowhere begging for you to understand why he did it ericus comes down from heaven <gasps> And carries him up. 
and they look at each other, and it's the only time you see Xehanort smile that isn't, like, a sneer. He's oh so God. genuinely happy at seeing Ericus again. It's insanity. Okay, now tell me how Sora and Riku are gay. Like, what yeah. is what is the main takeaway from this video besides the fact that they are gay? I will get to that. Because you got to the how the old men are gay. <laughs> yes, I did. Because that seed blows my mind. I will get to that in just a few minutes here on BBC Radio. By the time this is over, 10 people will be affected by intimate partner violence. Reportedly, one out of four women and one out of nine men are victims of domestic violence or dating violence. If you or someone you know is suffering from domestic violence, call the SafeNet hotline at 814-454-8161. You are not alone and you deserve help. Call them today. Oh my gosh, did you hear what happened to Jake? No, what happened? He got hit by a drunk driver, and he's in the hospital. No way, that's terrible. I hate drunk drivers so much. Yeah, me too. It can be prevented so easily. Drunk driving is a deadly epidemic that takes the lives of more than 10,000 people each year on average. Remember to drive sober or get pulled over. To learn more, go to one.nhtsa.gov. When you're first starting at Barron, classes can easily become overwhelming. You feel like you're drowning in a sea of your own work, but it feels too embarrassing to ask for your professors or friends for help. Luckily, Penn State has the Learning Resource Center. Here, you can find tutoring for freshman and sophomore classes under math, writing, business, and engineering. Head to the library between 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. and find student volunteers just like you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. We're gonna hit the hit the bricks immediately. Um, so S Riku Sora Kingdom Hearts. Kingdom Hearts has the thing. So the main characters of Kingdom Hearts are primarily two characters, Sora and Riku. These are boys who grew up on the same island and have known each other since they were toddlers. Like it is very explicit that they are longtime childhood friends. Eventually, a new a girl comes to the island, Kyrie, um, and it kind of breaks my heart how Kyrie is very important to the first game and then is consistently swept under the rug for every single game. After that, you even play as her in the rhythm game and she barely gets anything. Oh, the no. ending of that game is how Riku has to do it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, but, so Sora and Riku go through a lot together. The entire crux of Kingdom Hearts of Riku's arc throughout the Kingdom Hearts games is that in the very first game, Riku really, really wants to leave the island. It's all he's ever known. He is... Sora is a middle ground. He wants to be with his friends, and he's willing to do anything to make them happy. Kyrie and Sora... Or Kyrie and Riku are direct oppositions at the early... At the start of the game. Riku desperately wants to leave the island because he believes that there's something else out there for all of them and he feels suffocated living in the same place and stagnating there. Mm -hmm. Kyrie is scared of that change. A very reasonable fear especially for a kid to have, but she wants nothing more 
than for everyone to stay on the island and for nothing to change forever. Eventually, Sora and Riku bump into this weird old guy in a robe. Um, he initially gives the pitch to Sora of, hey, you want to leave, don't you, kid? And Sora's just like the softest boy imaginable. And he's just, I want to be with my friends. And the man in the robe just goes, all right, this isn't going to work, and leaves. No! <laughs> By the way, the man in the robe is Xanor um, from the start. And um, he gives the pitch to Riku, who immediately buys into it. Mm-hmm. All, all he has to do is open up his heart to darkness. That is what the man in the robe tells him. And so, uh, Riku does that, and doing that causes a literal storm of darkness itself to envelop the island. It tears it into pieces, it throws it into space, and it floods the island with Heartless, the little shadow monsters. Um, and in that moment, Riku is simultaneously incredibly excited and terrified Sora walks out of the cave that he met the old man in and sees Riku there. And this is one of the most, like, sh- like imposing spin-with-the-series-forever shots of the franchise is just Riku extending his hand to Sora. And Sora, no hesitation, breaks into a sprint and tries to take his hand. Mm. And the storm pulls him away. And for a moment, Riku looks devastated, and then he is whisked away by the storm. You do a bunch of boss fight stuff. You meet Donald and Goofy. A lot of stuff happens. And the whole time, Riku is being manipulated by Maleficent. Mm-hmm. Um, like, who just shows up because it's Kingdom Hearts. Um, Kingdom Hearts primarily ends up using the... It's, I didn't even realize it until this video. Utilizes the Disney stories that they pick for each game to highlight the state and kind of parallel the state that Sora and Riku's relationship is at. Maleficent is a deceiver inherently from her movie. You look like, you know that Maleficent is a deceiving force. She's a snake and her, all she's doing is telling Riku that Sora has given up on him, that Sora never really cared and that he only cared about Riku because it was just them on that Island that Riku has been replaced by Donald mm-hmm. and Goofy. And Riku is pretty much your rival the whole game trying to turn open up other worlds to darkness because he genuinely believes what Maleficent is saying. Mm-hmm. And Sora, obviously, tries to stop him. You go through the whole game, all, the diff- all of the different Disney worlds, until you get to Hollow Bastion, a world that they explicitly say... Kingdom Hearts says this multiple times, but they say that this world is at the end of the world. As in, there is, there should be no way of getting to it. Maleficent and Riku get there because Maleficent runs it right now. She could just teleport them because she's Maleficent. And (laughs) Sora gets there, and the only Disney character, the only Disney characters there are Beast and Belle. Sora and Beast are in the same state of, like, being extremely tired, and Maleficent is like, how did you two even get here? Beast explains, Sora doesn't even know how, but Beast explains that he was pulled to this island because he wants more than anything to save that person that is closest to him. Oh. And and while in the beginning, it almost feels like Kyrie's there just so that 
the writers could go to the Disney censors. No, 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 it's straight. Because Kyrie's also there. We know how there. much Disney likes gay youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and it is heavily implied. Here's the thing. Kingdom Hearts... It wants to trust that you have media literacy, so it will it will say. <laughs> Which is hilarious because it's Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, it, it will it will I. It, it's generally a story that like respects you. It like will say something and then heavily imply that that is either the truth or it, it will have characters. There are excuses. Yes, mm. it will have characters straight up lie, and you are expected to realize that they are lying as the course of the game goes. It doesn't have a character suddenly go, "You're lying." You just have to use your eyes and realize, "Oh, that character's lying." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, even there. Um, okay, so Sora got there because Riku is the most important person in the world to him. Sora and Beast fight through the entire tower, Sora to save Kairi and Riku, Beast to save Belle. Beauty and the Beast is used to represent Sora and Riku. relationship? Used to represent Sora and Riku's relationship in four games. I mean, the stained glass, too. Yes, yeah, the stained glass. Um, But uh, Riku ends up getting corrupted by Maleficent's boss, Ansem... Seeker of Darkness, who is an original character, mm-hmm. um, a, who is basically a shard of Xehanort. Um, Xehanort gets turned into two shards. He gets turned into his Heartless and his Nobody. And Ansem is basically just like a douchey scientist. He, <laughs> he, he believes that the world belongs to darkness and that all things should return to it. Like, mm-hmm. that is the natural state of the world. If everything is shrouded in darkness, nobody has to think, nobody has to hurt. Everything can just go to a natural state of eat, sleep, eat, die. Yeah. And um, he corrupts Riku's body and takes direct control of him. He fights Sora. Sora manages to beat him. Sora beats Ansem himself and opens up the door to darkness, which is... Basically, like, the portal into the dark world. It is just a giant gate that keeps darkness from corrupting everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Riku snaps out of it and immediately realizes everything that he's done. Mm -hmm. And helps Sora shut the door. But the door can only be closed if somebody is on both sides. Sora closes Mm. it from the light side. And Riku uses himself to close it from the dark world side. Mm -hmm. And... That goes into the next games. And the interesting thing is, from a, narrative, from a narrative perspective, if this was one game, you could say that Riku was redeemed. He realized what he did was wrong, he apologized, and he made the grand gesture to atone for it. For all senses and purposes, he has redeemed himself. Mm-hmm. Riku will go through the rest of the series still trying to redeem himself because he doesn't believe he's earned it. <sighs> like, this is a story about a kid who doesn't believe he deserves the love that his friend is trying to give him because he hurt them when they were, like, 14. And it... And also, he is inherently dark and taboo. Yes. And it's... Okay, so here's the thing. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts 1 is very darkest, 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 bad, light is good, yada, yada. Um, Immediately after that, Riku's very next appearance is all about him realizing that, no, 
you have darkness inside of you, but that is not inherently a bad thing. And let's go shadow work, baby. <laughs> literally, and Riku becomes Riku starts on the road to dawn, which is a thing in universe he invents, which is the idea of utilizing light and darkness at the same time. Let's go. Because hey, you're an individual. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Um, even though it's Kingdom Hearts is literally about a bunch of old men trying to tell the next generation how to live their lives and everybody flipping them off on the way out. Like They're literally flipping them off. Wait a minute, there's more nuance than good and evil. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's just... I can't pull up the scenes, obviously. But <clears throat> um, the, the big one in Kingdom Hearts 2 that has people going for this is through a lot of stuff that happens, Riku has to allow himself to be overtaken by darkness for a little bit to save Sora. Sora gets locked inside of a pod for a year as he tries to get all his... As something happened, he lost his memories. They are being implanted back into his body. That will take a year. Riku is shown this and immediately vows that he will do whatever he can to make sure that nobody disturbs Sora. The organization comes around with the express purpose to disturb Sora and take his (laughs) powers... And Riku fights a one-man mission against the entire organization. He is eventually forced to utilize, like, all the darkness inside of him. Literally, and they pull for Beauty and the Beast again, literally becoming a beast. Yo! To protect somebody with a flower motif, because Sora is locked inside of a giant flower, a rose. Seri- are you kidding I'm me? I'm not kidding. <gasps> You the did pod, not tell me this when you first started that talking Sora about. The was in is a rose. You did not tell me about this when we did our Kingdom Hearts series. Yeah, I hadn't watched a six-hour video on it. <laughs> I hadn't done my research. Um, <laughs> and he becomes a beast to protect Sora. Oh Sora comes out boy. of the pod, and the the entirety of Kingdom Hearts two is the whole gimmick being, oh, a year's past, things have changed. Sora is basically out of time. He he hasn't changed since that time, except he has physically grown. And mm-hmm. Kairi doesn't remember him, and Riku is missing. He meets Kairi again, and it's it's pretty much just like a, oh, Kairi, hi. G- good to see you. You look different. And just kind of moves on. Um, <laughs> Riku who, because he's utilizing all the darkness inside of his body, is now stuck looking like Ansem, the boss of the first game. Oh, like, he shoot. physically changes to look like him. Um, Sora, uh, um, like, at the start, does not recognize Riku. And the moment that someone tells him to close his eyes and listen, and Riku sounds like Ansem here, too. It's not like, an, oh, he sounds like Riku. Mm-hmm. Um he immediately realizes. And the difference in the scene of Sora meeting Kairi again. Versus meeting Riku. Meeting Riku. When, when he realizes it's Riku, he sprints across the room, drops to his knees, holding, clutching Riku's hand in both of his hands, and starts crying. Okay, yeah, there's no... Uh, and, come on. And, <laughs> and he, he's sobbing and just, I've looked everywhere for you. And it's... So, de- this is the third game of the franchise, and they're being this explicit. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that realization, 
Riku realizing that Sora recognizes him and still cares immediately snaps him out of the beast, like, darkness mode. He immediately turns into Riku again. Yo! And the whole rest of the game allows you to have Riku as a party member. He's the best party member in the game. As he should Um, be! They have a limit attack where they literally do a back-to-back combo where, like, they are so powerful they are floating in the air and they're swinging their keyblades in sync and, like perfectly synchronized with each other and like covering each other's weaknesses and it's ah um and then the fight the series of final bosses is Sora and Riku on like a hover bike thing and Re- and Sora's in the sidecar as Riku's flying it and they fight a giant dragon robot mm-hmm. and then they burst through it and fight the actual final boss Xemnas and it's a team up fight where you fight with Riku and there's a lot of stuff in the fight. There's a lot of like little quick time event cutscenes, but the big one being from this point on in every single game for the rest of the franchise, every single boss has a desperation move. It's the game giving them a moment, even if you're blitzing the boss to show some character and kind of give the fight a memorable moment. This first one, Xemnas surrounds Riku and Sora with like lasers. He creates a dome of projectiles around them and starts firing them one at a time. You are forced to mash both the attack button and the assist button to counter them. And it starts very slowly and starts picking up speed until you block the entire dome. And the entire time, the animation being Sora and Riku literally like diving, not to protect themselves, but to protect each other. Bro. And the fight ends with a cutscene of. Xemnas trying to kill Sora, who is, like, tired. Riku jumps in front of the swing, takes it, gives Sora his sword, and then Sora does a combo, and then, holding hands, they fire a beam of light through Xemnas' chest and kill him. Yeah. And, and then, and then... And then! The game ends as the world that they fought Xemnas in disintegrates and they are left in the world of darkness. Sora and Riku kind of come to peace with the fact that they might be there forever and no one might find them, and they're okay with that because they're there together. This is, of course, immediately broken as Donald and Goofy and Mickey find the door and blow it open, and, hey, guys, you're back, like two minutes after that fact. And I bet they're secretly just like, ah. Yeah, that's how it feels like. Like, they are completely fine with being there alone together forever, and yeah, they are forced. Yeah, no, that they're definitely in love. That's if that that doesn't like, they're definitely in love. Like, don't get me wrong, I love my best friend Bria. Shout out to you, but like, I couldn't be stuck in her with her in a room forever. (laughs) Yeah, you you couldn't be trapped in like Greek Thanatos hell where it's not hellfire, but it's just nothing forever it's it's so good and this is the third game of the franchise let, let me remind you this is kingdom hearts 2 there's like a million of these uh, there are like games. 11 games <laughs> every single game after this point will be doubling down on how hard sora and riku care about each other my favorite other example of here being Dream Drop Distance, which, by the way, has the Hunchback of Notre Dame in it. Let's and, go! And, and Riku, so you play a Sora and Riku in Dream Drop Distance. They're going through the same worlds parallel. Um, 
the whole thing being they can't find each other, but they're fixing problems. And the whole thing being basically them angsting about not being able to see each other. And, oh, my God. And Riku meets the gang from Notre Dame. And Esmeralda has a pretty explicit little moment where she goes, just because you don't feel comfortable with telling people what you are or how you feel doesn't mean it's not valid. And you just need to realize, you need to put a name to it. You need to really think about who you are. Introspect. Yes. And mm. of all the characters. Riku. Yeah. They have Riku go through this. And I just think it's funny, by the way, because, yeah, Riku gets that moment. And then Sora gets called a slur by the priest from Hunchback of Notre Dame. He calls him <laughs> exactly what you think he calls him from Hunchback of Notre Dame, the G word. Oh. Like, to his face. And Sora's like, huh? What does that mean? No, literally, Sora's like, hi, mister. How are you doing? And he's like, you're dressed like a boop boop boop. And Sora's like, huh, you're funny. And he just leaves. <laughs> like, that's Sora's relationship with the Hunchback of Notre Dame. That is a riot, honestly. Um, but, so, so the big twist at the end of Dream Drop Distance is that Actually, the, the whole intro of the game is that Sora and Riku need to undergo their Mark of Mastery exam. They need to dive inside of worlds that are asleep, really old Disney movies like Hunchback of Notre Dame and Fantasia and stuff, um, and help them wake up in order to gain a special power. The big twist of the game being when that happened, immediately as the test started, Sora dove into the dream and Riku realized something was wrong. He immediately realized that Sora was in trouble before Sora even realized and instead dove inside of Sora's dream. That's why oh. they can't see each other. Um, and Riku not uh, ends up... The whole big thing is that Riku has been protecting Sora from the organization who are using this as an opportunity to basically snag Sora and use him as a new body for Xehanort because that's the whole thing. Um, and the whole final moment of the game being Riku, like, you fight a young time-traveling version of Xehanort who's kind of pissed that Riku is this strong, and he's like, I don't get it, why do you care so bad about beating me? And Riku is just like, because you're trying to mess with Sora, and that, like, you're, you're not, that's not happening. And he breaks time, like... <laughs> Xehanort sets up a time loop where it's like, you cannot beat me. If you are about to beat me in this fight, it will loop back to the start of the fight. And Riku breaks it with the gay blade. The gay blade! Sora's asleep and he uses it. That's great. And it's, it's, oh my god, dude, it's so good. Okay. <clears throat> we went a little bit over time. And this ended up, shockingly... Into me ranting about Kate DeMarcus. I knew once I started it, there was no stopping it. Um, oh, yeah. What was the thing that I said I was going to talk about that I didn't end up talking about? I said I was going to talk about later, and then I never ended the up Fetishization talking. of men? No, that oh. was earlier. I, I mentioned another thing that I was going to talk about, but I forgore. I forgore as well. 
That's okay. It'll come back. We can do a part two of this. We could absolutely, if you want to do next week, we should totally do a part two of this. Okay. We have, well, a, we have a lot of things to say about this. Honestly, I would love to have Zen on this if we can get them on here. Absolutely. Heck yeah. I bet Zen has a lot of things to say about Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> you mean Parker? Hmm? Parker. Yes, Parker. Parker oh my gosh. named I'm after so Peter sorry. Parker. I'm so sorry, Parker, <laughs> if you're listening. I'm so sorry. Right. I love you. Thank you so much, <laughs> folks, for tuning in. We went a little over time. But hey, look forward to next week here on BBC Radio. I was joined today by... Liv. And I've been your host, Michael Manning. Please be safe, be good to each other, and have a fantastic night.